The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. All around Aotearoa, we have all sorts of problems we could be solving by building things. Roads, railways, hospitals, schools. We've got way too many people and not enough stuff. So our instincts are to build the stuff and then we could solve the problem. However, when you build stuff, you can create more problems, you can solve old problems, you can solve other problems which appear to have nothing to do with not having the stuff. And Aotearoa has this huge infrastructure deficit. It's been measured by the Infrastructure Commission at nearly $200 billion. That's if we were to fill up the existing infrastructure deficit from all the population growth we've had so far, and that's about $100 billion. And then there's another $100 billion that we could be spending to invest ahead of the population growth we're expecting over the next 30 to 40 years. So why don't we just get on with raising the money, spending the money, building the stuff? Well, it turns out if we were to spend $200 million over 30 years or so, we'd have to more than double the rate of infrastructure spending we're doing at the moment. And... Rightly, some people say, well, we can't afford that. That would mean higher taxes for everyone. Or does it? Let's park that one for a bit. And then secondly, there's the issue of where do we get all the people to build this stuff? And where do we get the stuff to build the stuff? So this is something we are going to have to deal with over the next 30 or 40 years. How do we find the money to build the stuff? How do we build the stuff? How do we solve our problems? And, and this is the most crucial thing, how do we do it in a way that's fair, not just to the existing people who use the existing infrastructure, but fair overall to resolve some of the problems we've got in Aotearoa with equity, and that means with the way that public spending has been done in a way that means some people don't have access to services and some people don't get a fair crack of the whip. Now, we've heard a lot about this this week with the debate around equity in health and the moves by the Auckland Division of the new Public Health Authority to use new criteria for building surgery lists so that past 
unfairnesses can be rectified. That's all fine in health, but how could you do it in infrastructure? This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Jeff Cooper, who is the Head of Strategy at the Infrastructure Commission. And they're doing a lot of excellent work, I think, to work out uh, what are the problems, how big is the hole, how can we solve it, and how can we do it fairly? And what does fair mean? Because once you get into the arguments about who pays for things, who gets access to things, how they're paid for, then you get into quite politically difficult topics in that you're essentially saying sometimes we're going to take something off this group and give it to another group. Or we're going to take some money off this group and we're going to build something that the original group may not have any ability to use. For example, when you tax someone in Auckland and build a motorway in Christchurch, it's pretty unlikely the Aucklanders are going to get to use it. Or let's say, for example, you tax the spending of someone in Auckland, spending on goods and services, maybe it's food, and then you use that money to build a railway line, probably in Auckland, and maybe used by the person who spent the money on food, but there's no direct connection. So how do you do all this in a way that's fair and solve some of the past problems we've had with access to services? Now, there's a bunch of ways you can do this. And one of the obvious gnarly questions is, how do you essentially take some money from people who can afford it and use it to build other stuff that they may not use. Well, you can, for example, make sure that you only charge people who use a service or a piece of infrastructure. Uh, you essentially use user pays to solve the problem because that does two things. Firstly, it means there's a very direct connection and it's quite hard to complain about fairness when you're the one who's paying for it. And secondly, it also means that by imposing a price or a charge on something, you can reduce the demand for it. And that's one of the ways to fill the hole, if you like. So instead of trying to build your way out of the problem, you would, in essence, solve some of the problem by putting a charge on it, and that reduces demand for it. Now, in some cases, that also helps you deal with the infrastructure problem to start with. And the best example is water. So if you impose a charge on water... That means people immediately start caring about the holes in the pipes or about wasting that water usage. And it's very clear in Auckland and in Tauranga and on the Kapiti Coast, where there are water meters and water charges, that it has reduced demand and reduced the amount of spending that was necessary on, on that stuff. But the problem, of course, is that when you charge the same price for the same product, and you charge everyone the same amount, depending on usage, you can almost immediately change the fairness of it. So let's, let's say, for example, you've got a big family and you use a lot of water in your house and you can't afford to pay for it, but you have to pay for it. And that's one of the reasons why politically it's been very difficult to um, bring in water charges. The second issue is how do you make sure that you fairly pay for all this infrastructure when, as a country, we don't have a wealth tax. 
We don't have an inheritance tax. We don't tax capital gains. And most importantly, we don't tax the gains on the value of land when it's been rezoned or when a piece of public infrastructure is built next to it and the value of that land goes up. That's seen as free money. That is a birthright of uh, anyone who owns land. The ability to engineer some public investment in that land or around that land to get essentially a private gain from a public investment. Well, that's seen as how you get ahead in New Zealand. And I think this is one of the issues that the, our infrastructure strategists will have to face, is that when you do the right thing, which is to charge people who benefit from public infrastructure for that public infrastructure, and it may not necessarily be a charge for the actual use of the infrastructure, it may be capturing some of the gains from the value in the land, then you're up against, in essence, an entitled view of how this country works, which is if I can manage to get ahead of everyone else, buy in the right place, and work away within council or wherever to ensure that something is rezoned or that a motorway is built, then that's just fair. That's a fair thing to happen. Well, is it? Because the gains are extraordinary, as we've seen with the rise in land prices, particularly of those on the edge of town, where we know that a lot of development has happened in the past and where politically it's easier to get through. A, you immediately make some very rich people much, much richer when you increase the value of that land. And you also, of course, by building motorways out there, essentially create a lot of private value using public spending. And this is one of the core things we're going to have to get around in this debate. How in the process of building all this infrastructure do we ensure that it's done fairly? Particularly, as we know, with the climate crisis, that those who are hurting the most and who are going to be hurt the most are those who can least afford it. This week on When the Facts Change, we talked to Jeff Cooper, the Head of Strategy at the Infrastructure Commission, about building infrastructure fairly. It's not easy, but it's necessary, and in many ways it's going to be the biggest task of any government for decades to come. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Jeff Cooper from the uh, Infrastructure Commission, Te Waihanga. Um, Jeff, great to see you. Kia ora, Bernard. Yeah, yeah, really, uh, really good to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, you've been busy, or at least the Te Waihanga has been busy, with um, putting out some briefing papers and and also a, a draft paper to get people thinking about fairness and infrastructure. Could you tell us why you've done that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is one that came out of the New Zealand infrastructure strategy. You re remember some time ago, uh, we went through quite a big consultation process on that document. And one of the big things that people sort of said to us is don't forget the equity side of infrastructure. It's not uh, it's not all built form. We, this is about who we are, uh, the communities that we're a part of and, and the opportunities that we have access to. Um, and so it's given the commission, I think, some pause to go away and think, and, and have a, a stronger view on what it is uh, that we mean when we talk about equity and infrastructure. Um, 
you know, what does it mean to sort of um, fund and finance something in a way that's seen as, as equitable? What do we even mean by that? What are the sort of elements or the sp- spectrums of equity that we're, that we're thinking about? And what role does, uh, does capacity, because that's ultimately what infrastructure is about, capacity to move things around, what role does capacity have uh, in, in those opportunities uh, that we want to give all New Zealanders? So when you say um, what role does capacity have, what sort of things are you talking about there? Yeah, well, we have to make decisions about um, about roading infrastructure, about rail infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure. And we're, we're often thinking about, um, uh, you know, the opportunities that we have in different ways, right? So it could be that we're thinking about different income groups. We might be thinking about different geographic uh, places, places that are growing fast, places that are growing slow. It might be within cities, places that have really good access to the to, to jobs and and other amenities and other places that don't have such good good access. And so we're thinking that in some instances, infrastructure can be a real solution to that. We can, we can think about improving uh, cycleways, rail networks, so that people can get access um, to places that they want to go to more quickly. Um, uh, so there are real sort of built, built um, possible built solutions there, right? But on the other hand, we need to be thinking about how we fund and pay for um, these infrastructure. And, and there is nothing... Uh, free about infrastructure, somebody has to pay, um, and so these are the sort of knotty questions um, that we want to that we want to tug at and say, well, what what is a kind of equitable way of thinking about how we fund and finance uh, our infrastructure, and what are some of the big equity issues that come up? Is it always right to be thinking about uh, building new big capital assets that have long maintenance and operational costs at the back end, um, or should we be thinking about other solutions? Yeah, that question of who should pay is um, a thorny one, uh, right at the heart of every democracy, uh, involving someone else will pay, not me. <laughs> uh, so could you tell us you know, how we've done it in the past and why we just can't do that again? So in the past, it, you know, over various times, you know, the last couple of hundred years of um, infrastructure, we started off with the crown uh, borrowing money offshore. You know, those amazing railways that we built in the 1870s onwards, right through until the mid-80s when Think Big was the government uh, and in some cases the Prime Minister himself (laughs) negotiating uh, debt overseas. Why can't we just do that again? The the, the way I would sort of describe it uh, is that I sort of think of New Zealand's infrastructure system as a bit of a leaky bucket, right? And uh, to some people, you know, the view is that we need to just pour more water into the bucket. And other people will look at that and go, well, it might actually be better to plug some of the holes in the bucket, right? And so the infrastructure strategy in our work thus far has kind of said that we need to do both. Uh, We need to look at where the system uh, is not performing so well, whether that's about thinking about project selection and getting the uh, best bang for our buck, um, whether about it, it's about making sure that we have institutional learnings around things like tunneling, for instance. Um, and then on the, at the same time, it's also thinking about, well, hey, we do need to do more of this, right? We're not spending enough on infrastructure. We made it pretty clear with the case for change in that strategy that we need to roughly, uh, to build our way out of it, we need to roughly double the expenditure uh, on infrastructure services. So there's, there's two things that we need to be focused on here, more but also better. Yeah, but we've heard this for the last 30 years, you know, oh, we, we be, it's best not to invest in infrastructure because we can't do it very well and it's all very expensive, so let's just not do it at all. 
Meanwhile, the politicians are rapidly pulling the migration lever and not bothering to do the infrastructure spending. Why can't we just double the amount of money we spend on infrastructure to you know twenty percent of GDP or whatever it is? Um, I know that you 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 said this is what it would cost to build our way out of it, and the finance minister immediately said, "No, we can't do that." Why can't we do that? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons. Um, so, firstly, I think if we were to try and build our way out of it, it raises affordability issues. Um, if we're talking about doubling our infrastructure spend, we're talking about an additional three thousand dollars per taxpayer per year, and for a lot of um, folks, that's a that's a really big number. Um, so, there are affordability issues behind it. Well, uh, I think it depends who you're talking about. An average of three thousand. What if we just get all the rich I, people I, I, to pay for it? Then you need to make some assumptions about how you're going to how you're going to mm. pay for it. I, and I think we should get there in a second. So we'll, let's talk about how we fund it mm. in a moment. But there is a, a legitimate affordability question there. It's not unsolvable, but it but it's certainly an important one. Um, and the second one, of course, is workforce. Uh, you know, right now we're running a very hot economy. We don't have the workforce that we need. And if we if we were trying to build our way out of this, we would need to um, we would need to double the the, the infrastructure workforce in fifteen years, um, and that feels to us uh, like a path which is not sustainable. It needs to be uh, more gradual than that. But but more than that, I would sort of say that I don't think building our way out of this is the best value for money. I think that there's a lot of low hanging fruit which are non built built solutions. You know, we can talk about uh, the maintenance of infrastructure uh, assets around the country. We don't do maintenance very well, right? And it is a lot cheaper to maintain your assets than to run them into the ground and build new each time. So there's actually a number of these non-built solutions that present themselves as much better value for money than trying to um, just build your way out of these, these problems. Do you have any others that we could think of? Yeah, sure. I mean, in the strategy, we talk about all sorts of different options here. I mean, uh, every recommendation that we sort of talk about, we put into four categories, right? We're thinking about uh, recommendations that help streamline the delivery of infrastructure. Um, The second one is the bulk funding that we've kind of talked about. The third one's better project selection and building consensus around projects at, at, I think, a much earlier stage uh, so that we don't flip-flop later on. Uh, and then the last one is making better use of existing infrastructure. And we divide that into four different areas. Uh, the first is, is designing our way to better outcomes. So you can think about um, houses that retain heat um, in a better way, meaning that we need less electricity. Um, you can think about education, right? And we've seen great examples of that uh, with um, education, education around smoking, for instance, that means less uh, resources into hospital infrastructure. Um, regulation and then of course pricing, right? Which is which is the one uh, you've mentioned as well. We talk a lot about how our system of infrastructure prices plays out across all of the sectors, and and that is an interesting one because sometimes we use prices very fluidly, um, and sometimes we don't use them at all, right? And so you can compare them, compare something like um, transmission pricing in electricity networks. Um, which is, you know, essentially a real-time pricing mechanism against something like volumetric water charges, which uh, are very seldom used around the country. So in some of our sectors, you know, we have very sophisticated pricing and in other sectors, we have no pricing. Um, And that's not to say that we're not paying for the infrastructure, although we might not have as as much infrastructure as we like in our water networks. Um, But it's just saying that we pay for it in different ways. And those different ways tend to be centralised funds, right? And centralized funds have downsides. You're competing with other priorities. 
um, and those centralized funds uh, can go through different cycles. You know, they're, 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 um, they change depending on the business cycle. Can you talk about the um, the equity aspects around um, user pays, I suppose you could call it. Um, you know, it might be water charges, it might be congestion <coughs> charges. You're right, some of the public infrastructure we've got in some places uses these charges and it's a great way to manage demand. You can think of water care in Auckland, which has made a lot of progress there. But for a lot of people, the question of congestion charges is this is going to hurt the poorest the most because they're reliant on these publicly paid for assets. Um, so how do you think about this? Or I know it's early days with this study, but uh, you know, how, how should we frame this in our heads? So I guess the first point I would make is that we're not really talking about user charges here, that when it comes to infrastructure services, a lot of the time the beneficiaries of infrastructure services aren't necessarily the users. Uh, of those of those services, and let me give you an example of this. If you think about a project like the City Rail Link, the City Rail Link has already led, according to um, uh, cost benefit reports, has already led to an appreciation of three billion dollars in land value around the stations along the Western Line. Right now, those individuals along the Western Line that have already benefited from this uplift may or may not use that service. Right. So but they, case, but they the just won the, the lottery. That's how it works in New Zealand. You make sure you find some yeah. land and get some public infrastructure invested next to it, and you capture the gains. That's how New Zealand works. That, that's quite right, and that's what comes out of the, the differentiation between a benefits principle and a user charge, right? And that's why in the commission we've been quite specific that we're talking about a, a beneficiary's pays, not a user pays situation. Uh, in part because when it comes to infrastructure, different to going into a supermarket and buying your, your fruit and veg, it's not always the user that benefits, right? And so we actually need to think quite a bit more creatively around how we, what funding tools we use so that the people that are benefit, benefiting from it are, are paying, right? And you, could, you can look at that through an equity lens, right? You can say that, um, you know, it should be the people that are benefiting from these services that are, that are paying. Um, but it's not just the, the clipping the ticket. That's the key thing. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. 
it's interesting. Ratings capture uplift um, or um, targeted rates, whatever you call it. Essentially, this is ensuring that the uh, the person, or the state, or the council, or the government that is paying for the infrastructure essentially collects a big chunk or a chunk of the uplift in the uh, value of land around it. But you never hear councils arguing for this. For some strange reason, the people who benefit from these land value uplifts often seem to, <laughs> to be well well uh, argued inside council. And I've yet to hear a government actually argue strongly for it yet. I, I, I don't know of anywhere where it's actually being used in New Zealand in any substantial way, other than in Queenstown for inclusionary zoning, and that's under severe threat from a backlash from, from landowners. Yeah, so let me just make a, a couple of points there. First, I think the... Um the, the rating on on capital value or land value, depending on which which one the council is using, that's that's affecting the distribution of rates, but it's not necessarily affecting the quantum of rates, right? So you would actually have to levy a targeted rate um, to get the uplift, and I agree with you that that's that's not commonly done. It's um, it, it's not that it never happens, but it, it doesn't um, it doesn't commonly happen. What, where you need to go from here is look at other infrastructure sectors to, for examples of this. And if you do that, you actually find that there are other examples uh, where I think um, decision makers have made decisions in moving into the space. And I'll give you a couple of those, right? The, the Kapiti District Coast um, put in place a volumetric charge for its uh, water pricing, and that resulted in 75% of the ratepayers actually paying less uh, in their water bills and they were able to defer an infrastructure project by 40 years simply because they were able to better make better use of the of the um, the water infrastructure. So that's one example. And another one, which is also in the water sector, but a more recent example, comes from Christchurch, where they've uh, recently put in place uh, water charges there. So residential property owners pay a fixed rate of, I think it's $1.35 for every 1,000 litres that they use over a daily limit. And, and what that's um, resulted in is a 10% drop in water use as well. So you can start to see here that um, there is a potential win-win on some of these where you can make better use of the asset, get some other objectives. In this case, we're talking about water conservation and result in lower prices. You know, So that's a, that, that's the sort of opportunities from the Infrastructure Commission's perspective that we're looking at going, well, where are these? Because these look like nuggets to us. And then the Capital Council was voted out at the next election. This is the, <laughs> this is the problem. T- is that every... Uh, councillor, mayor and government minister, no one wants to be the person who puts up those charges because they get voted out the next time. And this is the frustration, I think, um, that we've seen for 30 years is that uh, we, particularly in the last uh, 15 years or so as our population has grown so quickly, we have avoided these decisions around congestion charges or simply using taxes, centralised taxes or rates to pay for it and ended up horribly under-investing in our infrastructure. And one of the risks, you could argue, of recommending congestion charges, cap- ratings capture uplift, is that it's a, it's a very conventional and obvious and uh, economically sensible thing to do, but no politician wants to touch it. I just wonder if um, that political real politique is something that will be assessed in the 
not just this report, but other reports that, that you've done. I suppose you could argue we just give the advice and the politicians can do what they want with it. But the risk is that uh, by going for the economically sensible thing, uh, and then nothing happens or not enough. Yeah, I mean, our focus is on is on outcomes, I suppose. And, and our, our job here is to put forward the best possible evidence we can um, showing where there is where there are benefits to, to be had. I mean, the point that I would make here, though, is that we're not, this is not talking about how much we're paying for infrastructure. It's talking about how we're paying for infrastructure. And that is a point that I think is often, often lost in the mainstream where, you know, if you put your water charges down to zero or if you put your congestion charge down to zero, there's this feeling that, you know, we're not paying for it. It's free. <laughs> Water's free or the roads are free. But, you know, for anybody that's in infrastructure, we know full well that's that's not the case, right? Um, that somebody is paying for that, that water infrastructure to get the water from the reservoir to the pipes to your kitchen. Um, somebody is paying for the maintenance of that road. And and if, if it's not what we're talking about, the maintenance um, of the road, then we're all paying for it in terms of the time we spend waiting, right? So, and I think there's something interesting here about, you know, why is it that we are... Have, have put up with uh, congestion and transport for so long compared to other sectors that we look at. Because you can think about congestion in water, right? That's that's like a lake or a flood. <laughs> and we don't put up with that because it has quite considerable impacts. And we don't put up with congestion in, in, uh, in electricity networks because it, it can cause a literal meltdown, right? Like congestion has big effects. But congestion, when it comes to people, it's kind of just waiting around. And, um, and that's sort of been less catastrophic, if you like. And you I, could argue it's a fantastic yeah. tool to ramp up uh, land prices close to the centres of town. And um, that's perfectly fine if you, if you benefit from higher land prices closer to town. Well, my, my response to that would be I'd be quite happy with higher land prices next to town if it resulted in more housing, right? So there, is not a, not, there doesn't have to be a relationship between high land prices and high housing prices. That is a function of regulatory policy, right, as you know. And so what I would say to that is that we have two um, policies that I think stand out as being ones that probably would have been quite politically very difficult to do um, as somebody that, that lived and breathed uh, the unitary plan in those early days with the medium density residential standards and the MPS uh, UD. And what they do really is they they are important uh, complementary policies to something like congestion charging because it allows development to move into areas where there is no congestion, right? Um, and so I actually think that now that those policies are in place, we're in a far better position um, to be thinking about congestion charging than we were previously. And as um, uh, you do your work, and by the way, thank you for, for the God's work involved in the unitary plan and the MDRS um, I'm firmly in the um, let's build lots of um, warm, dry houses close to where people work and play and and um, and are able to do it uh, with a bike or walking or buses and trains. I just uh, I'm curious about land prices. We sort of touched on it there, and you've you've got some uh, papers that have just come out in the last day or two talking about how urban land prices are quite a factor in many of the infrastructure decisions that we take. And that it's a big factor in the costs. We forget uh, when we hear these stories of cost blowouts. We, we think of, you know, a motorway cost blowout or a, 
um, a big project cost bl- blowout, or railway cost blowout, then in some cases, it's not actually a, an increase in the cost of construction or delays in the construction. It's just the sheer cost of the land that, that the, um, the railway or the council or the government has to buy to um, make sure that that particular project can, can work. Can you tell us what you found with your research so far? Yeah, yeah, I can. And um, it's just a really good introduction to this topic, that land prices are an input into infrastructure. And that is point number one, right? So when we have broken land markets, it's really affecting our infrastructure markets. So really glad to start on that point. So let me start by saying that the land prices are an infrastructure issue. So on the one hand, uh, if you've got a shortage in infrastructure, it can limit your, your development opportunities in cities and it can result in higher prices, right? A scarcity, if you like. Um, but on the other hand, as you've just pointed out, higher land prices also make it costly and difficult to build infrastructure where and when it's needed, right? So the sort of um, circle that you kind of get yourself into here is that if you're trying to build infrastructure at the same time that it is needed or plan for infrastructure at the same time that it is needed, you're also facing really high land values. Why are you facing high land values? Precisely because people want to be there. That's also why uh, the, the case for infrastructure stacks up as well. And what we have in New Zealand is a situation where we've got a story of just-in-time infrastructure provision, right? We sort of wait and we wait and we wait, and then we realise that when we need a, a project, and that's when we start to hustle really hard, right? Um, but we don't have a great record of moving through the business planning into delivery uh, very quickly. And one part of the puzzle here is, is land acquisition, that we tend to buy the land for infrastructure when we need it, or a few years before when we need it. Uh, and that means that we're spending a, a lot on land. So, so another point here is that, sort of segue into this, is that we're really bad at forecasting, Ben. Um, this will come as no surprise to you, right? But let me just give you a little uh, anecdote here, right? In the 1960s, we thought we would have a population of 4.5 million by 1990, okay? And then in the 1980s, we projected that we'd get to 4.5 million by 2040, right? A range of 50 years. And we ended up getting there in 2014, okay? So we're really bad at projecting what the future might hold, right? 84% of rail and 50% of road forecasts for big infrastructure projects are out by at least 20%, right? And the future is getting more and more difficult to forecast because of climate change, weather-related issues, uh, housing prices that are pushing people out of areas that we thought were going to grow, and all of a sudden it's not those areas, it's adjacent areas, and so on and so forth. And so what this is really asking for infrastructure providers is to think about infrastructure under quite intense, large degrees of uncertainty. And right now the system actually doesn't do that very well because we're buying the land as and when we need it. And so the research that we've recently released is all about land acquisition and what we can stand to gain by purchasing land many years, if not decades in advance, to buy ourselves optionality uh, over when and where we might provide infrastructure projects. So we introduce a couple of uh, case studies through this, but let me just give you the bottom line of it, is that if you don't designate years or, or perhaps decades in advance, you're likely to end up in a situation where you need the infrastructure, but you can't either can't afford it or you can't put it in the location that you want because that location's been built out with competing um, development, right? And so, and it turns out that that happens in 54% of the simulations. 54% of the time, 
if you don't land designate early enough, you're going to end up in a situation where you want the infrastructure, but you can't do it. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, that is the situation that we are operating in right now. We, we feel like we, we need all of this infrastructure. We do the cost benefit and we find that it's really difficult to push that number above one. Um, and that is because we haven't done a ton of this uh, land designation uh, years in advance. And we're trying to do just-in-time infrastructure provision. So, so the research really goes into um, explaining how we can do this um, uh, better. And then the second paper is really looking at uh, how the rural-urban land uh, differentials have changed over time to make the point that land acquisition has only become more and more important over the last 10 years. So the differential between those two, between rural and urban, has doubled and in some cases tripled in our major cities, right, over the last 10 years. So these are becoming quite big issues for for both regulation but, but also infrastructure provision. Gnarly. Land is tough. Just finally, we haven't talked about climate here. And one of the variables now in thinking about um, how we develop our cities and our infrastructure is not just the the cost of doing it or the climate emissions impacts of doing it and how we do it, but also how fast we do it. Because you could argue that, you know, a million tonnes less of climate emissions today is more valuable than a million tonnes less in 2050. Because if we can more quickly reduce our emissions now, apart from anything else, we reduce our climate emissions liability um, a financial liability, let alone the actual environmental cost. How are you thinking about that? And also this this idea of a just transition, that one of the risks in um, changing how we run the economy to be a zero emissions economy is that yet again, it's the poor who will uh, pay the cost or, or in relative terms, pay relatively more of their income or their wealth um, to achieve this. And that um, how you do your infrastructure and when and who pays for it will um, be a reflection, uh, you'd hope, of those two things, um, a just transition and a fast transition. Okay, a couple of points I'd make there. The first is that I think infrastructure is, is a real friend of our environmental goals here, right? And I think that it's important to start there because that's not always where we've come from. Um, I think with a lot of our infrastructure planning in the past, um, we've really felt like there is this trade-off between, uh, between environmental outcomes and infrastructure outcomes. And, you know, I think that a lot of that, you know, we see that in, in current resource management legislation, right? And we hear about it from infrastructure providers all the time. But of course, the, the world has changed. And now we're in a situation um, really where we need infrastructure to respond to decarbonisation efforts. We need to build a west wind every six months if we're going to get to our electrification uh, targets. And this means we need to be nimble, we need to be fast, and we need, we need to bring things online quickly. Likewise, with our cities, you know, in many places, you know, this argument that there is nothing greener than the blacktop, you know, people that live in high dense cities tend to consume lower energy resources. Um, they're less likely to spend long periods in traffic if they're living close into the city centres, right? So I'm talking dense living. Um, but those areas need to be serviced uh, with infrastructure. And likewise, when you're thinking about um, the cleanliness of our waterways, like we need infrastructure 
to help manage some of those effects in there as well. And so I think that there is this argument and perspective that infrastructure, if we're going to deliver on our environmental targets, we, we need to make infrastructure easier to build and deliver, right? Um, so that's that's the first point. On, on the equity issue and the just transition, look, this might be the issue of our time, right? How we deal with equity a, as we transition to a net zero economy. And there are some big, big knotty problems in here. Um, the first thing I would sort of say about this, and I, and I hope that the um, re, uh, recent release of our uh, equity um, deep uh, dive research is evidence of this, we have to take these issues very seriously because it is really important that we bring New Zealanders along um, on the journey for this one. That uh, The alternative is that we, we lose consensus and we go a lot slower. And so I think that, that you know, our work in the equity space you know, has this front and centre of mind, right? that we have these big challenges, um, but we're also a country and we need to bring people along and, and think about those equity implications and take them seriously from a, from a policy perspective. And that's the advice that we're, you know, we're looking to understand a little bit further. Thank you very much to Jeff Cooper uh, from the Infrastructure Commission, Te Waihanga. Thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.